kind of missed the hype when the original Star Wars movie came out in 1977. We didn't see it when it came out, as it came to no theaters in our area. But one day we went to Ottawa, and planning to drop in on my grandparents for a visit. They weren't home, but they lived across the street from the Somerset Theatre. And a movie was playing there that my parents had heard was pretty good, and they suggested we catch the film while waiting for my grandparents to come home. The movie was, of course, Star Wars. And also, of course, it absolutely blew my mind. I was more hip to things when Empire Strikes Back came out, and I saw it within a month of release. But the real jewel in my Star Wars movie-going timeline is when I saw Return of the Jedi. Much like how Luke and the gang returned to Tatooine for the start of that film, so too did I return to the Somerset Theatre. But this time, to see it on opening weekend. I was no clueless seven-year-old now, but a 13-year-old grade 9 student ready for adventure. My dad wrote me a note excusing me from school on a Friday afternoon to attend to important matters, and I ran down to the Voyageur bus station in Renfrew and caught a bus to Ottawa. The Ottawa terminal was on Kent Street, right at the Queensway, just about a 20-minute walk to what was now my grandmother's place, my Gumpy having passed away in 1980. And when I turned the corner onto Somerset Street, I could not believe my eyes. The sidewalks were filled with people in all directions, leading into the theater. Like, I mean, packed with people. There were big spotlights set up to shoot into the sky at night, like the bat signal, and theater workers stood outside barking orders at the crowd through bullhorns. I got up to Grant's apartment, and she grabbed my backpack from me, handed me a sandwich, and said, Go, go, get down there. I'm not sure she knew from Star Wars, honestly but she knew a big deal when it was happening right across the street from her home, that's for sure. I got into the line about 2 p.m. This was a line to buy tickets. Just to buy tickets. And at about 6 p.m., I got to the window, and I bought one seat for the 9.30 show. Quick sidebar. The Somerset might have been Ottawa's biggest theater at the time, but it had only one screen. Ticket in hand, I went to the longer line for ticket holders. My sandwich was long gone, I fell in with some university students and we ordered a pizza, which was delivered to us in line. That was pretty cool, and not something you'd see every day. Eventually I got into the theater, grabbed a seat in the middle of the back row and settled in, and it was incredible. As every character debuted on screen in the film, there was a roar of appreciative applause from the crowd. And by the time the Battle of Endor broke out, you could have heard a pin drop from that audience, so wrapped were we all with what we were experiencing. The film over, I exited, a bit drained, and with no one to share the experience with. I was exhausted, but with resolve I headed back into the ticket buyer's line, and after a short one-hour wait, I bought two more tickets for a Saturday matinee. I returned to Grand's, crashed on her couch, and got up early and called my cousin Jason. He loved Star Wars as much as I did, and I told him to get downtown so we could see Jedi together. It's a far cry from today when you can pre-order tickets with pre-chosen seats on your phone weeks in advance, where every town has a multiplex and films play on multiple screens in the same theater, an experience like the one I had, which was the biggest event film of that year, probably doesn't exist anymore. Going on a quest to see a movie, like some mythological hero out of a Joseph Campbell essay, well, it's been normalized, made mundane. The quest no longer exists. Only the experience, heavily commodified, remains. But so, too, remains my love 
for old movies. Hello, film historians. I'm Derek, and I love old movies. We've got Sam the Sidekick here. Hello, and welcome to episode 34. Episode Shut the Front Door. Episode We're Gonna Talk About Movies Some More. Oh, that's a good one. Thanks. And yeah, we're ending off our look at Western movies this month with a cool film from 1948, Yellow Sky, starring Gregory Peck, Ann Baxter, and Richard Widmark. There is not a slouch in that bunch, that's for sure. Nope. So this will be a fun episode. We're glad you're here listening along. So glad. All the glad. And yeah, we know, we've noticed that maybe, maybe Western movies for March wasn't exactly what our listeners were most interested in hearing. Like, compared to romances or requests or war movies, I would say our Western episodes haven't quite been hitting the mark with our listeners. And that's good. It's all good. People like what they like. And I mean, our all-time most listened to episode is a Western, so who knows? Yeah, that's true. So let's do business and get on with this. For sure. Okay. First off, thank you for being here. And please take a moment to hit like, subscribe, and share. Especially share. Just share. Prioritize the sharing. And if you're listening to us on an audio-only platform, see if you can drop us some stars and a quick review. That sort of thing helps us out. And check us out, as always, on the socials. Basically, it's... I love old movies, the podcast, wherever you look for us. Search that and we shall be found. Throw an at gmail.com on the back of it, and you can even send us a good old-fashioned email, just like the pros do. And be sure to check us out on petrockradio.ca, where you can hear previous episodes of our show played three times a week. Mondays, Saturdays, and Sundays. And the rest of the time there, you can just hear amazingly wicked music. So definitely do that. We'll link them in the description. Tell them the gang at ILOM sent you. Okay, so, Yellow Sky. Yeah. This is going to have a bit of a familiar feel to it. A recognizable vibe. In fact, it might come off eerily similar to last week's The Oxbow Incident. Why is that? Well, they're both 20th Century Fox productions. Okay. Both have Harry Morgan. Okay, okay. Cool. That makes this our third Harry Morgan film. Yep. And they have the same director. Oh. And writer. Oh. And they lifted a few scenes and possibly sets. Okay. But these are still very different films. Oh, they are. Last week's film was all about a sobering examination of groupthink and mob violence. This week, it's a deep study on the desires of men. And in all honesty, despite being a Western, you could be forgiven for thinking that this actually might be a film noir. Sounds great. Let's get on with it. Hit the music. Now, normally, this is where we would talk about the director of our film. But we discussed William A. Wellman just last week in episode 33. If you missed that and want to go check it out, for sure do that now. We'll wait. And likewise, our writer Lamar Trotty was also a subject we spoke of last time. So if you missed that, be sure to give episode 33 a listen and hear all about him as well. This has never happened before. I'm a bit surprised. 
I could see it happening more often in upcoming episodes, honestly. Yeah, you're probably right. Okay, anyway, on to our actors. After you. It's always a bit daunting when we try to speak about the genuine megastar type actors. Their careers and influences are so great, it's tough to sum them up and do them justice in the time we have. Talking about Gregory Peck presents exactly that kind of problem. A med-school dropout that caught the acting bug. To say that Gregory Peck's career took off like a rocket would be no understatement. After studying under Sanford Meisner, Peck debuted on Broadway in 1942. And by 1943, he was in Hollywood and saw a meteoric rise that saw him well-established as a top film star, being nominated for Best Actor in only his second film, The Keys of the Kingdom. In fact, Peck was nominated for Best Actor four times in a five-year span from 1946 to 1950. He would have to wait until 1963 to win the prize for his signature role as Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird. By 1950, Peck was such a big star that he took the unusual career path of almost exclusively appearing in films that were of special interest to him, and usually when he could only play very exceptional characters with almost larger-than-life qualities to them. Roles in Horatio Hornblower and as Captain Ahab were typical of his 50s-era films, which also saw him make a few exceptional westerns, like The Bravados, and the anti-war film On the Beach. In the 1960s, with films like Cape Fear and To Kill a Mockingbird under his belt, his output slowed significantly and decreased in quality and success. By the mid-1970s, he was appearing in a range of interesting films, though, such as The Omen, MacArthur, and The Boys from Brazil, which had him turn in a chilling, villainous performance as Dr. Joseph Mengele. The 80s and 90s saw him work sporadically, essentially drifting in and out of retirement, until his last screen appearance, a TV remake of Moby Dick, where he played Father Mapple. In addition to his Oscar, Peck also won six Golden Globes over the years, showing the acknowledgement that the industry had for his talents. And in 2003, Peck's portrayal of Atticus Finch was named the greatest film hero of the past 100 years by the American Film Institute. And Peck himself was ranked number 12 on their top 25 screen actors of the classic cinema. Okay, I sort of can't believe I haven't seen this film now. We have to watch it soon. <laughs> Deal. Peck was also quite active politically, actively campaigning for liberal causes. In particular, he greatly opposed the very existence of nuclear weapons and was a staunch advocate for gun control. A masterful actor who excelled at playing larger-than-life roles and was excellent at projecting virtues such as decency and honor, Gregory Peck died in 2003 at the age of 87. Sometimes there is no better strategy for finding success in your chosen field than being born into a wealthy and influential family. This was certainly the template that Ann Baxter followed. The granddaughter of famed architect Frank Lloyd Wright and the daughter of a high-ranking executive at one of the largest distilleries in the world, Baxter had the best training money could buy, and living in New York brought her opportunities to perform on Broadway, which were quashed when co-star Katherine Hepburn had Baxter replaced over a conflict of acting styles. Baxter moved to Hollywood, was signed by 20th Century Fox, and made a series of films immediately, going on a wild 10-year tear of films that included Orson Welles' Magnificent Ambersons, which she made on loan to RKO in 1942, and The North Star in 1943, for which she received top billing. She was instantly popular with audiences during the wartime era, 
Her girl-next-door charm a strong counterpoint to Betty Grable's appeal as a sex object, and made a nice foil for action star Tyrone Power in a number of films the duo made together. But it was The Razor's Edge in 1947 that Baxter really made her mark, winning the Oscar and Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress, and on the strength of that, landing what was probably her most remembered film, All About Eve, in 1950. Baxter left Fox after that, moving to Warner's for two films, one with Alfred Hitchcock and one with Fritz Lang, before heading to Paramount to play Nefertiti in Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments. By the 1960s, Baxter was mostly appearing on TV shows and guest spots, turning up on Batman, What's My Line, and My Three Sons. Baxter also appeared on stage often during the 60s and 70s, focusing her life mostly on her work as an actress and not the trappings of celebrity. She ended her career with a role on 80s primetime soap opera, Hotel, before her death in 1985 at the age of 62. Some films have amazing narratives attached to their production, with twists and turns, and as much drama off-screen as on. And some films are just made, and that's about that. The very fact you even said it that way tells me what kind of production this was. Oh, very astute. The rights to the novel that the film was based on were purchased before the book had even been published, and Fox began the process of developing and putting the film into production. The role of Mike was a bit tough to cast, as the studio wanted Lauren Bacall, but Warner had no interest in loaning her out. And they even cast Paulette Goddard before finally settling on Ann Baxter. Okay, well, having to settle on an Academy Award-winning actress isn't that bad. Right? You could have worse problems. Well, they did. But mostly those had to do with the harsh conditions of filming in the desert. The heat, the scorpions, the tarantulas, the construction of a large remote set, all the usual problems of a complicated location shoot. And taking care of the horses, too, right? Yeah. To prevent accusations of cruelty, the horses could actually only work for three hours per day. There's a funny scene when the gang first comes to Yellow Sky and they find the water spring. The men all dive in to drink and the horses just sort of stand there, having a polite sip of water now and then. Hopefully that speaks to how well the animals were treated, that they didn't go nuts drinking wildly. Oh yeah, that was really noticeable. It was like, why aren't the horses thirsty too? Gregory Peck didn't initially love this role, feeling he was miscast as a bank robber. But really, Stretch was filled with enough nobility, honesty, integrity, and honor that the character was quite on brand for him. Yeah, I had less problem with his character being a robber and more problems with him and Mike. Definitely. Despite this being a really clever and beautifully filmed Western, some parts do not age well. And Mike's role as an object of animal desire for the men and the constant sexual threat her character was subjected to, it does not play as well today. No, but her punching and shooting guys that got too fresh with her? Believe me, that part is still pretty enjoyable. But that was maybe ahead of its time. Yeah, I agree. What did the critics think? Well, they were pretty positive then, and remain so today. The cinematography, direction, and script were all praised, and the film was thought of as an excellently crafted western. Not everyone loved the ending, but the trip there is so good critics tended to forgive them for not sticking the landing. Okay. What's the tale of the tape on this one, Sam? 
All right. So we have a 7.4 on IMDb. Mm-hmm. The film won the Writers Guild of America Award for Best Written American Western. Oh, yeah. And the film can be watched on YouTube. Well, that's just what we did. Shall we recap this thing? Yeah, let's. It's 1867, and the Wild West is still suffering the hangover of the Civil War. A lawless gang of unlikely-sounding men, Stretch, Dude, Lengthy, Half Pint, Bull Run, and Walrus, ride into a town reenact the saloon scene with the erotic painting behind the bar from the Oxbow incident, and then proceed to rob a bank quite efficiently before firing their guns wildly as they escape. Pursued by the U.S. Cavalry, the men flee into the Death Valley salt flats, attempting to escape, taking their chances against the unforgiving desert conditions rather than against the soldiers. A hard journey leads them to the ghost town of Yellow Sky, where they find shelter, water, and meet the town's only residents, a tomboyish girl named Mike and her grandpa, a grizzled old prospector who has been toughing it out. Stretch is quite taken with Mike, but most of the other men have noticed her too, which puts her in a potentially perilous situation. The gang want food from Grandpa and Mike, and when they find out that Grandpa has been mining gold, they decide they want that as well. Well, not all of them. Dude, he's played by Richard Widmark, he wants the gold, and he convinces the others that they do as well. But Stretch would rather not bother with it. Arguments and gunfights ensue, and eventually the gang convinces Grandpa to tell them the location of the gold, and in return, they will take only half of it. Of course, they mean to take all. But when some Apaches that Grandpa is friendly with turn up, the gang gets very worried. But Grandpa sends them away, keeping the gang safe, and Stretch vows to follow through with the 50-50 bargain. Things also advance with him and Mike romantically, which is either genuine passion or clever politicking from Mike. Stretch informs the gang of his resolve to honor his vow to Grandpa, but Dude has other plans. He convinces the rest of the gang to throw in with him and take all the gold, and they open fire on Stretch, wounding him and forcing him to flee to Grandpa and Mike's house. The gang doesn't want to deal with any revenge rides, slow horse type scenarios, so they surround the house and plan to kill everyone. But Dude decides to open fire on the gang, missing Lengthy but hitting and killing Bull Run. This gives Half Pint and Walrus a change of heart, and they switch sides again, deciding to help Stretch. Lengthy and Dude head into the old saloon, intent on killing each other and Stretch follows, intent on killing them both. After all three men empty their six guns, only Stretch has survived, albeit barely. Stretch returns to the bank from the beginning of the film and returns all of the money from the robbery. He even buys a hat for Mike. And they all ride off together. Okay, so... That ending. Yeah... That film was really cooking, but from the moment all three of them went into the saloon, I feel they sort of dropped the ball. Yeah. So, I am curious to hear your pros and cons on this. Then let's get to it. Okay, so as always, we don't actually rate films here on the show. There are no stars or thumbs. We just tell you some things we liked. Some things we didn't. And then we recommend whether or not you might enjoy giving this one a watch. Take it away. My pros. 
Number one, the cinematography in this film is really great. There are so many well-composed shots of the gang, or the ghost town, or the incredible scenery of the desert, the salt flats, the nearby mountains. It's a great-looking film, it's shot in high contrast, that is incredibly interesting to look at. And it needs to be, since the absence of a score in many sections leaves the film relying on ambient sounds, dialogue, and mise-en-scene to set mood as well as tell the story. But this is a rare film that looks so good, the mood is set without music. The camera work and shot selection are really exceptional here. In particular, the decaying urban ruins of the would-be boomtown of Yellow Sky is on display as a crumbling tribute to the failed dreams of ambitious men. Number two, Anne Baxter's Mike. What a character. Despite the fact that she is saddled with being an object of desire for the men, and she does provide many traditional female roles, such as nursing and cooking, etc., she is a two-fisted action hero who is so far ahead of her time as a cinematic character, it's incredible. She is brassy, sassy, an able hand with a gun, able to punch out a grown man with a single uppercut, and instill ferocious desire in the men around her, which she may, it can be argued have even weaponized against Stretch in order to get him more on her side, and less on the side of his own gang. She is, in her own way, a femme fatale, worthy of any film noir. Although there is no overtness to her, no obvious sexual danger or ruthlessness that she projects, but from the moment she punches out Stretch and then grazes his head with a hip shot, we know the threat she presents to the gang. While on the surface, it can be seen that Stretch is merely inspired to switch sides due to his own nobility and the love of the right woman. I prefer to think that she was able to play his own game better than he could, manipulating him to fall out with his friends and renounce his life of crime. Besides, more hands will make for more digging later when the time comes. Number three, the central theme of the film is the desires of men, and how the pursuits of those desires will pit man against man man against nature, and man against himself. The desires are basic. The desire for gold and wealth, the desire for love, for sex, the desire for home, Walrus singing his song about being sad and lonely is especially poignant here. And critically, the desires bring no joy, no resolution. They don't bind anyone. They drive them apart, as the quest for what they want the most sets them on singular and competing paths. Mike is a linchpin for this. The desire the men in the gang have for her creates a schism amongst them, setting Lengthy against Bullrun and Stretch against Lengthy, and ultimately Stretch against his own gang. Their desire for wealth has already set them on a life of crime and a perilous desert crossing to avoid reckoning, and the heartless lover that is gold fever shatters what little of their fellowship remains by the end of the film. Everyone in this film wants, and no one gains. Wanting a thing can destroy a man. The runes of Yellow Sky are proof, and the narrative of the gang is just further proof. My cons. Number one, despite all the fast-paced excitement of the beginning, the film does a bad job of setting up the characters. We don't learn their names, learn little of their relationships other than they are in a gang together. We don't know their motivations. We know their actions, they've robbed a bank and they're fleeing the cavalry, and we see and we live their plight crossing the salt flats. But without a deep or even any understanding of who these men are, it's tough to get too invested in them as they negotiate through a mess that they themselves created. 
By the time we do learn more about them, it's easy to be rooting against them. Number two, the romance, if you can call it that, between Mike and Stretch. It's a bit of a, well, a stretch. Their banter isn't flirtatious. Their affection between them is literally forced. They hit each other, and Mike even shoots Stretch at one point, making it clear that she could kill him if she chose. And that's why I believe that Mike eventually capitulating to Stretch's advances are an act on her part, a ruse to manipulate him into protecting her and siding with Grandpa. And she needs that protection. She's under real threat from the more brutal and horny members of the gang. The posters really marketed the idea of their embrace, their passion, but it's just not there in the film. And make no mistake, I'm glad it's not. The film doesn't need them to be together. It just needs Stretch to want them to be, a catalyst to send him towards a better life. But the disconnect between what you might expect coming into this film and what you get in terms of the lovey-dovey, it's pretty vast. Number three, the anticlimactic gunfight in the saloon. Three men enter, all dedicated to killing one another. This could have been a really action-y, suspenseful scene. I'd love to have seen it. Instead, we get nothing. We hear gunshots, and we see the roulette wheel spinning, but that's not the cathartic battle I wanted to see. Just Mike wandering in and finding the aftermath. And in that aftermath, I'm not sure I buy Stretch just throwing in with Walrus and Half Pint again. They were an equal part of the plan to betray him, and they fired their guns at him. Why Stretch would want to keep them around, and why Grandpa and Mike would want to keep any of them around, aside from maybe using them as minors, is beyond me. The happy ending of the five of them riding off together is just needlessly cheery, considering everything that has gone on. And the fact that they need to go back into the salt flats to get home. Hadn't they considered that? And is this a watch for you? This is, right now, a top 10 favorite Western for me. I enjoyed the heck out of it. I think our listeners would too. So I definitely give this one a watch recommendation. You're up. Okay, so my pros. One, Mike. She was badass. I loved how she stood up for herself and just threatened to shoot everyone. And that she was good enough to do it too. Like when she shot at Stretch and skimmed the top of his head. That was awesome. And she didn't take crap from any of the gang members either, really. The way she didn't hesitate to punch Stretch right in the face was amazing. And then she was just straight up headbutting him too when he tackled her. I loved her, and I definitely would have liked to see more of her punching the guys out. 2. The Cinematography The shots were just so pretty. They were all angled so nicely, and they really drew me into the scenes. There was this one shot in particular of Mike in the house. It was all dark, and the moonlight from outside was putting a shadow from the curtain on her face, it was just really nice. Obviously not all the shots were exactly like that, but they were all pretty aesthetically pleasing. 3. The Settings First of all, I think it's hilarious that they used the exact same saloon as the Oxbow incident. That was really funny, and it was like basically the same scene as well. But also, all of the sandy areas and hills and the salt flats looked really cool. 
Oh, and the abandoned town that Mike and her grandpa lived in. I love ghost towns. All the buildings were falling down and were all decrepit. Everything was interesting to look at, and I enjoyed that. Okay, now my cons. One. The pace at the beginning. The first half hour was basically just scenes of the gang running away and then walking really slowly. It honestly wasn't that bad, but it just took too long to get to some things. Seriously, we had to wait for like 20 minutes before finally learning the name of one person in the gang. Not much had happened up to that point, but it's still hard to get invested in characters you don't even know the name of. It would have been nice to get some offhand comment that refers to someone by their name right off the bat. 2. The fact that Stretch forgave the betrayal. Yes, I understand that he was supposed to be this cool, noble guy with good morals. But still. The entire gang basically unanimously decided to betray Stretch and try to kill him. Halfpint was literally shooting up the house they were hiding in. Then at the end, Stretch, Halfpint, and Walrus are all chilling together and acting like nothing ever happened. They weren't even that friendly early on in the film, so it's not like they were best friends that were happy to brush the attempted murder under the rug. It was just weird and unbelievable. 3. The End This was just a big nope from me. First of all, the final gunfight? What a letdown. It was so anticlimactic. I was expecting this huge, crazy, epic three-way shootout. Instead, I got two of the guys dying off-screen. Ugh. And the very end was just as bad. Everyone is totally content ignoring how they were all trying to kill each other not that long ago, and then they all ride off... together? Does that mean they're going to share the gold now? Are they all just going to go tool around somewhere together? The ending was just very abrupt and not a satisfying finish to the story. Okay. So I'm guessing this isn't getting a must-watch from you like Oxbow Incident did. So, so where are you at on this film? Is it a watch or not? <laughs> I'd say yeah. Definitely watch it. All right. And with that, uh, we come to the end of another episode. And to the end of another theme month. So no more westerns for a while. Which is too bad, honestly. I love me a good western. Well, we did watch some good ones. No kidding. And next week, we start a new theme month where we will be looking at adventure films. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. And I think it's fair to say that we're doing four legit classics. Like no obscure films you might never have heard of. We're going with heavy hitters. All killer, no filler. Awesome. So be sure to check us out next week as we double down on Gregory Pack with another film of his, Moby Dick. I have always wanted to see this. You're going to like it a lot, I think. But until then, be sure to watch more movies. And tell everyone about us. We're not a secret, and you do not have to keep us all to yourselves. So tell your friends. Tell your enemies. You never know. They might like betraying their friends for a few ounces of gold as much as you do. <laughs> Maybe even more. For Sam the Sidekick, I'm Derek. 
and I love old movies. Additional research for I Love Old Movies, the podcast, is done by Nikki Weatherden. Audio clips come from freefx.co.uk. Images are used through the provisions of fair use, and our theme song, Burning Bridges, is by The Crocs.